Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore from way up here in the Idaho panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. Meet me on the softer side, meet me on the softer side, softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but of course, today, tonight, we are all here for Tao Lin. And I just have to brag a little bit first. I have the best job in the world. I get to meet famous writers and go to readings, and they pay me for it. And I never have to be embarrassed about what I say up here, because no one cares what I say. You're all just waiting for the main attraction. But today, I was a little bit embarrassed, because I really admire Tao Lin, and I want to do a good job. And... Um, he has such a unique presence, I think, um, for any young writer. Um, I've heard Michael Silberblatt call his writing Buddhist, and I've heard lots of other people call it bro, and wow, with those two can come together, I guess, at last. Um, but um, I also love that he's, you know, the king of the indie lit world, and I love the indie lit world. I read HTML Giant every single day, so it's a community that means a lot to me. And um, I, I think it's interesting that this great dexterity that Tao Lin has um, with the internet is also sort of this thing that people always want to get angry about. And I think your mom is right about this. They're just jealous. Because um, I remember the very first Tao Lin piece I ever read. It was a short story. Um, it was about a kid, and his family gets kidnapped by, kidnapped by the bullies at school and, and held hostage. And I thought, wow, man, this is really cool. And um, it's talking about contemporary culture and contemporary language, and it's uh, really honest and strange, and I loved it. And so I wrote to him. And I didn't put a picture, and I didn't say I work at a bookstore. I just wrote, you know, like, I, I thought this, this story was really good. And can you predict what happened? He sent me two free books. So I say maybe the key to um, being king of indie lit and having ultimate power over the internet is being an honest artist who's really generous. Just saying. Um, so let's give a warm round of applause to the one and only Tao Lin. I'm going to try without the microphone. I've tried it at dollar readings, it's usually better. But it seems like there's. A, I'll just try for a second. And I'm going to read a self contained part about the main character Paul's childhood. 
Paul's father was 28 and Paul's mother was 24 when they alone, out of the combined 15 to 25 siblings, left Taiwan for America. Paul was born in Virginia six years later, in 1983, when his brother was seven. Paul was three when the family moved to Apopka, a pastoral suburb near Orlando, Florida. Paul cried the first day of preschool for around 10 minutes after his mother, who was secretly watching and also crying, seemed to have left. It was their first time apart. Paul's mother watched as the principal cajoled Paul in, into interacting with his classmates, among whom he was well-liked and popular, if a bit shy and, quote, disengaged sometimes, said one of the high school students who worked at the preschool, which was called the Discovery Center. Each day after that, Paul cried less and transitioned more, more abruptly from crying to interacting with classmates. And by the middle of the second week, he didn't cry anymore. At home, where mostly only Mandarin was spoken, Paul was loud and either slug-like, or his mother would say in English, hyperactive, rarely walking to maneuver through the house, only crawling, rolling like a log, sprinting, hopping, or climbing across sofas, counters, tables, chairs, etc., in a game called Don't Touch the Ground. Whenever motionless and not asleep or sleepy, lying on carpet in sunlight, or in bed with eyes open, bristling with unidirectionalized momentum, he would want to intensely sprint in all directions simultaneously, with one unit of striving, never stopping. He would blurrily anticipate this unimaginative, unimaginably worldward action, then burst off his bed to standing position, or make a loud noise and violently spasm, or jolt from the carpet into a sprint, flailing his arms, feeling always incompletely satisfied. Paul's first grade teacher recommended he be placed in the English as Second Language program, widely viewed as for, quote, impaired students. But Paul's mother kept him in the normal class. His second grade teacher recommended he be tested for the, quote, gifted program. And he was admitted and began going every Friday to gifted, in which most of the 25 to 30 students having begun in first grade, were already friends. Paul felt alone on Fridays, but not lonely or uncomfortable or anxious, only that he was in a new and challenging situation without assistance or consequence for failure, a feeling not unlike playing a difficult Nintendo game alone with no instruction manual. Paul played chess one Friday with Barry, who suggested Paul's second move. Barry knew more about chess, so it was being helpful, Paul thought, and did as suggested for his third move also. Then watched an extremely happy Barry dash through the rectangular classroom, telling groups of classmates he'd beaten Paul in a four-move checkmate. Paul told three classmates Barry had, quote, tricked him, then returned to the floor and put the chess pieces away, and with the sensation of seeing a spider crawl out of view inside his room, felt himself reassimilating Barry into the world as a kind of robot-like presence he would always need to be careful around and would never comprehend. In third grade one morning, Paul finished telling something to his friend Chris, who was strangely unresponsive for a few seconds. 
Then with an exaggeratedly disgusted expression, told Paul his breath smelled, quote, horrible, and, quote, brush your teeth. Then turned 180 degrees in his seat to talk to someone else. Paul mechanically committed to always brushing his teeth and adjusted his view of Chris to include him with Barry and 90 to 95% of the people he'd met as separate and unknowable, unknowable. In fourth grade, Paul spent two days with Lori, a second grader in his neighborhood. Lori kissed Paul's cheek in a tree, then in her room showed him a Mickey Mantle card from her father, who'd said Mickey Mantle had the record for most RBIs. Paul, who collected baseball cards, said Hank Aaron had the record for most RBIs. Lori said he was probably right because he was really smart. At dusk the next day, rollerblading on the longest street in the neighborhood, Lori said she needed to try harder than Paul to go the same speed because her legs were shorter, which Paul thought was insightful. Entering middle school, sixth to eighth grade, Paul wanted to play percussion like three of his friends, including his, quote, best friend, Hunter. But his piano teacher said percussion would bore him, so he chose trumpet, which he disliked but continued playing until the summer before high school when he switched to percussion on the first day of, quote, band camp, which was 10 hours of practice every weekday for ten, two weeks. During lunch break the first day, Paul's practicing alone by silently counting and sometimes tapping a cymbal with a soft-headed mallet when a senior percussionist, the section leader, began teasing him from across the room saying he was, quote, so cool, and something about his baggy jeans, which his skateboarding brother at college in Philadelphia had left in Florida. Paul was unable to think anything except that he didn't know what to do at all, so he committed to doing nothing, which the senior incorporated into his teasing by focusing on how Paul was, quote, too cool to react, continuing for maybe 30 seconds before commenting briefly on Paul's hair and leaving the room. Believing that all the seniors, friends, and acquaintances, which included almost every person at band camp, now viewed his main effort in life as wanting to be, quote, cool, which he did want to some degree, but which now seemed impossible, Paul became increasingly physically, exclusively, critically, nearly continuously self-conscious the next few days in ways he hadn't before, but probably had been in latent development since preschool, and which affected his musicianship. His middle school friends, including Hunter, among whom he'd been most fearless and at least equally competent at whatever sport or video game, watched him fail every day to play the simplest parts, usually tambourine or triangle, of each piece. The percussion instructor that year punished everyone with push-ups if one person, usually Paul, played something incorrectly more than once. Paul's friends, subtly then openly with confusion and frustration, began to express disbelief at Paul's inability to count to a number and hit a cowbell or cymbal. Paul was too embarrassed by the end of the first week to speak to his friends all of whom seemed to have easily befriended the section leader and other upperclassmen. And by the second week had begun committing 
in certain situations to not speaking unless asked a good question. Two months into freshman year, he had committed to not speaking in almost all situations. He felt ashamed and nervous around anyone who'd known him when he was popular and unselfconscious. When he heard laughter, before he could think or feel anything, his heart would already be beating like he'd sprinted 20 yards. As the beating slowly normalized, he'd think of how his heart, unlike him, was safely contained away from the world, behind bone and inside skin, held by muscles and arteries in its place, carefully off-center, as if to artfully assert itself as source and creator, having grown the chest to hide in and to muffle and absorb, and later after innovating the brain and face and limbs to convert into productive behavior, its uncontrollable, indefensible, unexplainable, embarrassing squeezing of itself. To avoid awkwardness and in respect of his apparent aversion to speaking, Paul's classmates stopped including him in conversations. The rare times he spoke in classes where no one knew him or when Without knowing why, for one forty minutes, he'd become aggressively confident and spontaneous as he'd been in elementary slash middle school, about which his friends poignantly would always seem genuinely excited. He'd feel, quote, out of character, indicating he'd completed a transformation and was now, in a humorlessly surreal way, exactly what he didn't want to be and wished he wasn't. He ate lunch alone on benches far from the cafeteria, listening to music. His sort of refuge that was like a tunneling in his desolation toward a greater desolation, further from others and himself, closer to the shared source of everything, with portable CD players and earphones, feeling sorry for himself, or vaguely but deeply humbled, though mostly just silent and doomed. Sometimes thinking of how among 1,500 classmates, only two others that he'd noticed were as socially inept as he, a male in his grade, an obese male one grade lower. Paul would feel blandly otherworldly excitement, like he must be in some bizarre and extended dream, or lost in the off-screen world of some fictional movie set in an adjacent county. In Paul's sophomore or junior year, he began to believe the only solution to his anxiety, low self-esteem, view of himself as unattractive, etc., would be for his mother to begin disciplining him on her own volition, without his prompting, as an unpredictable, and maybe to counter the previous 14 or 15 years of put overprotectiveness, unfair entity, convincingly not unconditionally supportive. His mother would need to create rules and punishments exceeding Paul's expectations, to a degree that Paul would no longer feel in control. To do this, Paul believed, his mother would need to anticipate and preempt anything he might have considered, factoring in that, because Paul was thinking about this almost every day, and between the two of them was the source of this belief, he probably already expected or had imagined any rule or punishment she would be willing to instate or inflict. Therefore, she would need to consider rules and punishments that she would not think of herself as willing to instate or inflict. Paul tried to convey this in crying, shouting fights with his mother lasting up to four hours, 
sometimes five days a week. There was an inherent desperation to these fights and that each time Paul in frustration told his mother how she could have punished him in whatever previous situation to make him feel not in control. Two, he believed, helped solve his social and psychological problems. It became complicatedly more difficult in Paul's view for his mother to successfully preempt his expectations the next time. Paul cried and shouted more than his mother who only shouted maybe once or twice. Paul would scream if his mother was downstairs while he was upstairs in his room or some nights he would throw his electric pencil sharpener and textbooks and once a six inch symbol at his walls creating holes resulting in punishments but never exceeding what by imagining their possibilities he'd already rendered unsurprising predictable. The intensity of these fights maybe contributed to Paul's lungs collapsing spontaneously three times his senior year, when he was absent 47 days and in hospitals for around four weeks. One night, standing in the doorway of his parents' bedroom, when his father was on a months-long business trip, crying while shouting at his mother, who was supine in bed in the dark, Paul heard her softly and steadily crying with her blanket up to her chin in a way that seemed childlike. Paul stopped shouting and stood sobbing quietly, dimly aware as his face twitched and trembled, that he felt intensely embarrassed of himself from the perspective of any person, except his mother, he had ever met. He said he didn't know what he was talking about or what he should do, that he was sorry and didn't want to complain or blame other people anymore and felt an ambiguous relief to have reached the end of the thing without resolution and having tried hard, feeling aloud and ready to resign. He didn't stop blaming his mother after that, but gradually they fought less. And after each fight, when he would revert to his belief about discipline, he would apologize and reiterate he didn't want to blame anyone or complain. And by the last month of senior year, had mostly stopped fighting. On one of Paul's last days of high school, he and Lori were both getting rides home from Hunter, who, due to a difficulty in refusing requests from people who could see him, in elementary middle school, whenever a mutual friend rang his doorbell, he and Paul would pretend no one was home. Sometimes spent 90 minutes driving classmates home after school. The past eight years since Lori kissed Paul on the cheek, they'd spoken maybe three times. The day after they rollerbladed together, she had begun hanging out with a boy with the quote, rat tail hairstyle. <laughs> and the most intimate Paul had been with another girl was a 10 minute conversation at a away high school football game with another percussionist. Lori repeatedly asked Paul why he wouldn't speak and not receiving an answer began provoking Paul to quote, say anything seeming as committed to eliciting a response as Paul was to not responding. Lori was loudly asking with genuine and undistracted and bemused curiosity, which Paul felt affection toward and admired as he stared away from her out his window, why he couldn't speak, and if he could just, quote, make any noise. When Hunter, who'd been talking to someone in the front passenger seat, sort of forced Lori to stop by aggressively asking about her current boyfriend. 
as he had consistently the past eight to ten years, Paul felt endeared by Hunter, who used to be an equal, but now, and for the past three or four years, was like an overworked stepfather or sensitive uncle to Paul, the mentally disabled stepson or silent, troubling nephew. That's the end of the point I want to read. Q&A, you just raise your hand and I'll point at you. There's <laughs> a band called Choking Victim. Yeah, probably got it at one of their shows. I wear it a lot, I guess. I know you said you worked, you worked harder on this book than any others. How many hours do you think you spent working on this book total-ish? I have like a... I calculated it at some point, but I, but probably like a third way through, I stopped calculating, keeping track. So I don't know, but I could probably go back and figure it out. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> Are you Paul? Is it a memoir? No. The thing about that is, um, I don't want people to read something in a book about a character and then meet someone in real life and apply that to that person because some things are changed. And also just because I'd rather people, when they meet each other, just not have any other information. Do you have more? No, no, in fact, it's, I, it was once said that you were working on a memoir. Is this it? I once said, like, I was going to write, a, like, a really long memoir. Turn into this, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if I wrote a memoir, I would feel obligated to, to qualify things a lot. Like, I would be like, I think if this person said something like this, or they might have said that, I'm not sure if they haven't in like, <laughs> I think would be like after every sentence. <laughs> I completely believed everything in this book. There was no place where I said, well, that couldn't have happened, that didn't happen. Is that kind of thing important to you? Yeah. The way I wrote this book, I read my memory as the first draft, just like a huge first draft that I've memorized and like know how everything connects. That way, it's it's e it's it's easier to make it believable, even if there's things that barely make any sense, because they're all coming from something that that um, makes sense. Thank you.
Right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, recommend books to buy for people to buy? <laughs> I recommend um, Like Life by Lori Moore. A Green Light by Matthew Rohrer. Joy Williams, anything by her, Ann Beattie, Lydia Davis. Biographies by Blake Bailey, I like a lot. That's enough. <laughs> if you all bought one of those books, that would be a lot of books. So. Uh, you mentioned before the, the writer, uh, Terrence McKenna. Um, what is something that you take away from that, uh, from his writing, and something that you can share with other people? A lot of things. Most recently, I just shared with someone a quote. It's like that he, he often likes to think of how things are wait no he like he he likes to think a view of the world that places literature where physics now is and when you die you you gain a dimension of freedom that is that would be equivalent to a character in a book becoming alive. Like characters in books, they have like their their lives, and then we have our lives, and then if we die, <laughs> we have. All right, I'm gonna read the actual quote. <laughs> I often like to think that our map of the world is wrong. That where we have centered physics, we should actually place literature as a central metaphor that we want to work out from. Because I think literature occupies the same relationship to life that life occupies to death. A book is life with one dimension pulled out of it. And life is something that lacks a dimension which death will give it. I imagine death to be a kind of release into the imagination in the sense that for characters in a book, what we experience is an unimaginable dimension of freedom. Does that make sense to people? And he, he He doesn't have like books about literature. He has a book about, he has a memoir about going to South America to find, I think it's DMT. But then he finds psilocybin mushrooms and becomes really interested in that. Then he has another book that is a theory of evolution 
that says 10,000 years ago humans some humans would eat mushrooms by accident and when you eat a low dose of mushrooms your peripheral vision is gets better so they had, they had an advantage in hunting and then the other effects of mushrooms like they would have orgies he said so somehow out of that consciousness emerged 10,000 years ago and then he views or he he never states something as if it's true. He always says like, I maintain or he states it as a theory. And 10,000 years ago, he views history, history meaning like culture that has been recorded. He views history as us being pulled towards a point in the future after which we can't imagine what it will be like. <laughs> like one thing that point could be is if like tomorrow someone invented a time machine a type of time machine that like you can actually build which is um, you can move back to the point where it was built so if that happened tomorrow then all of the future would like balance out and we can't imagine what that would be like. But he says history is just 10,000 years. It's like a very short span of time compared to like billions of years. So it's like we're, we're rushing towards the, the thing that some people call singularity. Terence McKenna, um, he has a lot of interesting quotes. He has a thing with octopus, where he said, he thinks octopus shoot out ink to like so other octopus can't see what they're conveying because octopus their language is seen it's not heard and there's no interpretation like if I was an octopus you'd all and I want to look at myself and everyone would know exactly what I meant.
But if I say a word, you'd all have different ideas in your head. And another interesting thing he has is he talks about how sand dunes, like wind, moves the sand around. And he has a metaphor that the sand is like our, I can't, I'm having problems phrasing this, just genes. Genes are like the sand. And on a higher dimension, there's a wind that's like blowing and moving the genes around. Just like the sand is being moved around. And he has a lot of stuff about the I Ching. He has just like so much stuff. On YouTube, if you just search his name, he gives a lot of talks. He died in 2000, I think, but there's a lot of talks. He was talking about the internet in 1995. He's positive about it. He thinks the internet will allow us to put the body into the imagination. So there will just be imagination. If that makes any sense. He died of a brain tumors, strangely. I feel like the government killed him or something. Because <laughs> he advocated psychedelic use. You did an interview with Joy Williams, and in it, I, and she, I'm a huge admirer of her work, mm. and she seemed to speak more cogently about her work than I've ever seen her do. How did that happen? Could you tell them about the interview? Were you together? No, it was just, I just <coughs> emailed and then someone else sent it to her and she sent it to that person and sent it back to me. <laughs> it came out really, were you happy with it? Yeah, yeah I think, I can't remember. I, I think I wasn't happy with it because I would felt like I would rather read her fiction and I was like forcing because it was just try to promote her book because she even wrote an essay about writing that ends with a line saying like none of this is what I long to say I what I long to say I say in the fiction so in that sense, I felt like has the novel become the form that you're most interested in working in, or do you still feel equally invested in poetry and shorter form fiction? 
novel. Because shorter form, wolf poetry. I'm really interested in Twitter, which is just a form, 140 characters per thing. Twitter and novel. Okay. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.